Drive, we're so happy. That's good. Say so what? It's hard to follow that. That's, that was really good. Man. Well, today is, uh, as you know it, Resurrection Sunday. Some call it Easter, but it's Resurrection Sunday. And so uh, we are building this week off of the journey of Passion Week, which we began last week in explanation. Last week, we talked about being Palm Sunday, everything that took place on that day, how Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey as prophesied a king of the Jews would. But then also that day was selection day and the day that the spotless lamb for the family, each family would be chosen. And so that day, Jerusalem was not only choosing their perfect lamb, but they were praising who they believed to be their king, the king of the Jews that would ride in, but bring in a different type of salvation, one that was more militant to help overthrow the Roman government that was oppressing the people of that day. And so the, the, the series of situations and circumstances that took place the next day, Monday, Jesus goes in and he's cleansing the temple of all the money changers and getting them out of there. And he, on the way, he speaks to the fig tree, he curses it, tells it it will bear no more fruit. He's prophetically speaking about religion, about the tree of knowledge of good and evil, about even the government's ideology of how the system of the kingdom should work. And so there, Jesus is saying, you will no longer bear good fruit or bear any fruit. Never have you bore fruit, and never will anybody eat from the, your fruit, the fruit of your tree ever again. And so he establishes this idea of what he is about to do in the next few days. The next day, that's when they, on Tuesday, they see the, the disciples saw the fig tree withered and questions Jesus about that. And later that day, Jesus gives us what we call the Olivet Discourse, where he goes and he's talking about him laying down his life, the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple being destroyed. He's talking about his second coming. And there's a lot of concern because it's pretty intense week already. And then the next day, Wednesday, and we can take a lot of advice from this, Jesus just rested. He knew what the week was going to bring, the end of the week, the intensity. He knew he would be going to the cross for you and I. And so he just rested and hung out with friends. He hung out with, with uh, Lazarus, who he had not long ago raised from the dead. He hung out with Mary and Martha and just said, you know what, let's just chill. And sometimes we get so intense about things that are coming up and stressed and overworked and worried and, 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 and anxious. And Jesus shows us, you know what? Just chill. Just rest. Thursday comes around and we call it Mon Monday, Thursday. Monday, Thursday, the Passover and the Last Supper take place on this day. Jesus sent two of the disciples from Bethany, Peter and John, into Jerusalem to the upper room to begin to prepare what would be the Passover dinner. This is where that last supper moment took place. This is where we get this idea of communion from. Well, in that moment, in that, that dinner, Jesus, having dinner with his 12 disciples, goes and begins to wash the feet of every one of the disciples. 
This act, this humble act of service shows us, he models what believers, what the body of Christ should do and how we should treat one another in serving and loving one another. Gives us a perfect example. And Jesus shared this Passover feast with his disciples saying in Luke 22, 15, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He knew the symbolism of this Passover meal. He knew that he was gonna be the Passover lamb, that he would be the lamb who would be slain for the salvation, for the atonement of every human being that would receive him as Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The moment, this was the moment that Judas Iscariot said, no, it's confirmed, this ain't the guy. This is not the Messiah I was looking for. Judas was a zealot, Iscariot meaning Sicari, or we understand the word as Sicario, a hitman. And his idea of what Jesus' coming would be would be more like the second coming of what Jesus is going to do. See, Judas and the zealots expected that the Messiah, Jesus, would ride in on a, on a white horse, yielding a sword, and on the thigh would say, King of kings and Lord of lords. This was the expectation of the zealots. They were so hardcore that no one should ever serve anything, and no Jew should ever be bound to anyone, but only have full opportunity to serve, G, serve God the Father and God the Father alone. This was the heart. And when Jesus was talking about laying his life down, going to the cross, when he was talking about dying for the rest of them, the others, for us, Jesus was like, How this gonna, how's this gonna work out? This is a different level of warfare than what I expected and I, my team, my zealots expected. This isn't gonna work, this ain't the guy. And there was the truth looking right at them and yet in his bondage, he could only see it one way. You ever been so hard stuck in your mind that things should be one way and you can't even see the truth when it's right in front of you? Whew. That's bondage right there. Sometimes we get so stuck on what we think things should be, what we think life should be looking like, or what we think you fill in the blank should be doing, and we're missing the truth of what God is doing in the midst of that right there. And for I say to you, Jesus says in verse 16, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And this he was speaking about him becoming the Passover lamb. Later, Jesus and the disciples left the upper room and they went into the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was praying in agony to God the Father. He was praying, he was in so much agony and tension that he began to sweat droplets of blood. Late that, e late that evening in Gethsemane, Jesus was betrayed with a kiss. This Judas Iscariot, the Sicario, came and kissed Jesus and handed him over. Handed him over to be taken into three trials. First to Annas' house, who was the former high priest of the Sanhedrin, and then to his Annas' father's son-in-law, to Caiaphas, who was the current high priest of that day, and then on to Pontius Pilate. You see, the world has been contesting the fact that the resurrection has taken place since it started. And if it, if it could be contested, 
that Jesus was never resurrected, then we wouldn't be here today. And it's only because of what took place today, 2,020 years ago, that you and I are even in this place. And, for, and to be honest with you, that you and I are even able to have the life that we're able to have. Because we would be in so much torment and so much bondage and so much deception that there would be no line of truth for us. And so Jesus being tried three times, three times, and again, the last one before Pontius Pilate, and it was, it was even hard to prove that Pontius Pilate existed for the longest of times. It wasn't until the 1900s that a stone was found near the ocean that said, inscribed on it, Pontius Pilate. This was the only evidence that proved, other than the word of God and, and historical books, that Pontius Pilate even existed. So there was a people group still saying, no, no, he wasn't resurrected. There was no Pontius Pilate. This is just a story. Until this stone was found and now is brought in to a museum in Jerusalem. And where it's set, in Caesarea Philippi, I've seen it, there is a monument that is made just like this stone that was found of Pontius Pilate. But until then, doubters contested, doubters wouldn't accept it, doubters wouldn't believe. And meanwhile, in the early mornings, morning hours, as Jesus's trial was getting underway, this is when Peter denied Jesus three times. One of his closest disciples denies him three times before the rooster would crow. Day six, Good Friday, preparation day, trial, crucifixion, burial, death. According to custom, the people began to make preparations for the Sabbath well before the evening fell. You see, the Sabbath would begin and the day would begin in Jewish culture at 6 p.m. the day before. So today, tomorrow starts today at six, if that helps you. The Sabbath, which is Saturday, started at Friday night, 6 p.m. for us. So the day would begin the night before. There's a leadership principle in that. I just don't have time to get into, but it's right here on my mind. But this would suspend normal business. If you've ever been to Israel, you really can't get anything. You can't get dinner. You can't get much unless you're buying from the Muslims. Because they would slow down, they would stop business, social activity, everything would stop at, by 6 p.m. so that they can rest. And it's still that tr true to be that today for the religious Jews. Jews, You go in, people start working to get things shut down, shutting down by 6 because they're entering into their Sabbath where they can do no labor. This would mean that the people would begin to prepare their Passover lamb for slaughter. And they would put blood on the doorpost of their homes. And the, they would have food prepared for the next day. They could eat it, but they couldn't work for it. This is Sabbath. And Good Friday becomes the most difficult day of the Passion Week. Christ's journey turned into the treacherous and yet acutely painful in these final hours leading to his death. According to Scripture, Judas Iscariot, the disciples whom Jesus had, who, who had betrayed Jesus, this was the time where he felt so overwhelmed of his betrayal, he went and hung himself. Meanwhile, before the third hour, which was 9 a.m. in the morning Friday, Jesus endured the shame of false accusations, condemnation, mockery, beatings, and abandonment. 
after three unlawful trials, nothing but false accusations. And Pilate even saying himself, I wash my hands of this, I find no fault in him. You do what you wish with him. Nothing. Three unlawful trials. He was sentenced to death by crucifixion, one of the most horrible and disgraceful manners of death in that day. Before Christ was led away, soldiers spit on him. They tormented him. They mocked him. They pierced him with a crown of thorns. They dressed him up like you saw in a robe of purple, shaming him. Prophesy, aren't you the king of the Jews? Who spat on you? Who hit you? Stripped him down, nude, fought over his clothes, shaming, humiliating him. And he said nothing. Jesus carried his own cross to Calvary where again he was mocked and insulted as these Roman soldiers made fun of him, betrayed, put, put shame, condemnation on his life for you and I. Jesus spoke his final statements up from the cross and after, his first words were this in Luke twenty-two thirty-four: says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In his most painful of moments, Jesus is speaking and teaching forgiveness. Isn't that interesting? In the most difficult moments of life, he's saying, I forgive them, will you forgive them? In your most difficult times of life, can you say, no, I'm in Christ. I forgive. Father, will you forgive them? His last words were this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What an example. Father, into your hands I commit my life. Thank you for what Jesus did on the cross. I receive that. And I receive him in every area of my life. He shall be Lord of my life. I commit myself to you, Lord. Matthew 27, 50 and 54, in the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus breathed his last breath and died. Matthew 27 says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. See, Passover lambs to, were to be slaughtered before nightfall on the 14th day of Aviv, according to Exodus. This was the same day in the new calendar. It was the very day and hour in which Yeshua was crucified. The blood of the Passover lamb applied to the doorpost of every family's home was the sign that spared them from death. The Passover was to be a memorial for all generations, a personal identification with the Exodus. Exodus was when God, using Moses, led his people, the Hebrews, out of Egypt and into the wilderness. They were fleeing. It was in an Exodus of leaving Egypt and going to the wilderness. His identification with the Exodus and God's miraculous deliverance from bondage and slavery. Isn't that good? Because it was a perfect picture of what would take place in Jesus Christ. Jesus is understood to be the Passover lamb whose blood covers and atones for all who apply it to by faith 
to the doorpost of their hearts. His perfect blood offered once for all secured eternal redemption and freedom from the bondage of sin and death. Those of us who are in Christ, who have received everything that he did on the cross, have everything we need, power and authority and dominion to move beyond the bondage and the sin that so easily entangles us. We have all access to everything we need to move beyond our struggles, yet the body of Christ struggles. We have been given everything it requires to move forward and let go of our yesterdays and move in full freedom and fulfilling this abundant life that Jesus Christ gave to give us. Yet, we have a part to play. Jesus has done his part and he says, hey, here's the keys, here's authority, here's what you need to move beyond. Would you just do it my way? Again, sometimes we're so head set, heart set on the way we think things should be that we miss the truth that's right in front of us. And only the truth will what? Set us free. And where the spirit of the Lord is, oh, there's freedom. So it speaks to me. Am I in the place? Am I in the spirit? Am I walking with the Lord? Is what I'm doing submitted and in subject to what the will of the Father is? Because that's where I find abundance. That's where I find healing. That's where I find freedom. That's where I find the fullness of who Christ says I am. That's where my identity truly found. So, there, so his perfect blood was offered once and for all. This restoring man to himself, restoring man to God the Father. This was the whole purpose, was to restore man who were far apart because of what took place in the garden. This is called atonement, of bringing together of God the Father and humanity who would become his people through Jesus Christ. But there's another key factor for the blood of the sacrificial lamb, and it must touch the mercy seat. For atonement, there must be the blood of the, the sacrificial, the spotless lamb to touch the mercy seat. Hebrews tells us that Jesus himself went behind the veil. The veil was torn from top to bottom. At this point, the Ark of the Covenant was no longer in the most holy place. It had been taken. The prophet Jeremiah had hidden it away in a cavern so that the Babylonian army couldn't come and steal it as they were putting God's people, the Hebrews, in bondage, bringing them into slavery, which was all a picture of what God was trying to show them we are when we're not doing things God's way. Ooh. I don't see any hallelujahs on that one, but let me tell you, when you get on the other side of it, Hallelujah. So look at this in Leviticus 16, 15. This is a picture. This is how God began to establish how sacrificial, sacrificing lambs, cleansing of the temple, and the atonement must take place. And the, all the Hebrews knew this, every Pharisee, every, every, every one of God's people, and God established these Old Testament principles to set up very spiritual things that would take place. It's called types and shadows. 
Last week, if you were here, I talked a little bit about how when God told Moses to tell his brother Aaron, who was the priest, and the line of Levites would come from Aaron, how to go in and cleanse the temple with the blood of bulls and rams. This blood would atone, would, would, would cleanse for Aaron and his family's sins, the temple, so that Aaron at that point, or the priest at that point, could come in, could bring the scapegoat to the door of the temple, tabernacle in that day, but it became the temple in Jesus' day, the door of the temple, the, scape, the sins of the people by the priest would be placed on the scapegoat and then sent out. Rabbinic uh, history says that a scarlet red bow would be placed on the head of the scapegoat and they would send the scapegoat out into the wilderness. And if they saw the scapegoat again and the, and the bow was turned white, they would know that God had forgiven their sins. So when Isaiah said, and you sang at the very end for the cross, he says, though my sins are scarlet, you've washed me white as snow. Whew. I get chills. I mean, that just excites me. I love that I get to walk with the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that took place, the things that took place right here and on this day right here. I love that. That, that gets me excited. And so in Leviticus 16, 15, as God is explaining this, he says, he shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain. Now, that was the scapegoat being sent out, the sins of the people being placed on. We talked about that. Now the sacrificial lamb or goat would be brought in, spotless, had to be perfect. This would be the goat, the lamb for atonement of the people. This lamb would be slaughtered, the blood would be brought in, and in the same way, the, the temple, the most holy place, which was behind the veil, which was torn in two when Jesus was hung on the cross and died, the blood of the spotless lamb would be brought behind the veil into the temple. Again, at Jesus' day, the ark was gone. It had been hidden. But in the day of Leviticus, the Ark of the Covenant was not hidden. It was in the most holy place, and only the priests and the Levites could go in as they were cleaned and wearing priestly garments. And so the priest would have to then take the, the blood from the sacrificial lamb and with his fingers flick it in front of the, of the Ark of the Covenant and on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant, the lid is the mercy seat. And so for atonement, the blood of the sacrificial lamb had to touch the seat of the Ark of the Covenant, which is the mercy seat. That's the only way that atonement, connection back from relationship with God to man could even be made. There's no other way. It's impossible. He says, he shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. So where Jesus died in Golgotha, Calvary Hill, the place of the skull is what it's called. And you can go there today. The place looks like a skull. In fact, several years ago, lightning struck it and broke its nose and the nose piece is missing from the skull. And the tomb where, where Jesus' tomb is, is right below it. On that hill where Jesus was sacrificed, the earth quaked and the rocks were split opening up the earth 
And remember, the Roman soldier, because the, the storms were coming, they broke the leg of the two other, the thieves. And yet Jesus was proclaimed already that the spotless lamb must be spotless and no, bro, no bone shall be broken. So he, they didn't do that, not because they intentionally did it. They just wanted to secure his death. So they thrust their sword, they thrust their spear through his abdomen and into his heart and there ran blood and water out of Jesus Christ. And remember, the earth had quaked and the rocks were open, and there is this water and blood running through these cracks. But where was it running? It's believed, and archaeologists have found, found evidence that the Ark of the Covenant was down below where Jesus was crucified, and that is the only way our sins could be atoned for because the blood of the spotless lamb must touch the top of the atonement seat, which is the mercy seat. And so Hebrews tells us in that moment, he went, he went behind the veil. Well, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there, but he did, his blood did go to where the Ark of the Covenant was so that our sins could be atoned for. Whew, only God, only God. And the earth was quaking and closing it up and an archaeologist, my, uh, Wyatt, thank you very much. Wyatt, goodness, forgot it, just forgot his name. Frank Wyatt, <laughs> Frank Wyatt was onto this. He said, well, wait a minute. The word of God says this, and if that's the case, then this. He, this is the same archaeologist that found, also found evidence of where the exodus took place and the Hebrew people fled across the river and Egypt, Egyptian soldiers were flooded over. There was spokes and wheels and chariots in this water. Same guy, same guy. And so he's going and he's excavating and he's doing archeological study and he's, he can't get to it, but all he can see is shiny gold structure inside. And he can see that there's caverns and passageways out of that place. And it's on film. You can research it, research his name, W-Y-A-T-T. But the only way our sins could be atoned for is if the blood of the sacrificial lamb touched the lid. And let me tell you, these ultra-religious Jews they know where the articles of the temple are. They're waiting for the, the last thing they're waiting for is the perfect red heifer, which is now the replacement of the bull that Aaron had to use. And once they find that, they, their idea is to restore and build the third temple. And it's gonna be an earth shattering day when that takes place. Let me tell you, it's gonna usher in a whole new season for the body of Christ. And the graves, verse 52 says, and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And the, coming out of the graves his, after his resurrection, now this was, this was pointing to Sunday, today, the day of the resurrection, but yet we're still on Friday. Matthew's just letting us know, here's what's gonna take place. Coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Can you imagine? You were by... You were just driving by TVCC, by the cemetery, and all of a sudden there's an earthquake and the ground starts to rumble and people start to shake stuff off of them. Something ain't right. Something is taking Walking around, oh, look at that. They put a Walmart where my, birth, my, my ballpark was. Can you imagine? There was no Walmarts, by the way, in this day and age. 
Some of y'all don't know. They didn't, Walmart hadn't been around that long. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and these things that had happened, they feared greatly saying, truly, this was the son of God. Isn't it amazing? A couple of acts, a couple of miraculous acts and all of a sudden we're proclaiming, oh, that, that is Jesus. What's it gonna take for you? John the Baptist affirmed this when he said this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. By 6 p.m. Friday evening, Nicodemus and the Joseph of Arimathea took down Jesus' body. Nicodemus, like Joseph of Arimathea, was a member of the Sanhedrin. He and, he and Joseph had watched and listened and began to reason that the things that Jesus was saying and doing were perfectly pointing to the Old Testament. And what the Old Testament was saying and had said was perfectly pointing to who Jesus was, but because they had so much to lose financially and positionally, they were unwilling to proclaim Jesus as Lord. We'll let that sit for a minute. So much to lose. What would people say if I proclaimed Jesus openly? Make it a little more clear. Would, would they still allow me to be a part of this if I proclaimed Jesus openly? Similarly, both were deeply affected by the, the death of Jesus Christ. They boldly came out of hiding, risking their reputations. Enough was enough. And they asked Pontius Pilate if they could take the body of Jesus where they began to prepare it with myrrh and aloes. They were preparing the body for burial. They're the ones that put the linens on it and placed it in the nearby tomb that had never been used. This is the same thing in the same hour that would be taking place all over Jerusalem. The people were slaughtering their Passover lamb, and at this same moment, they were preparing it to put it into the oven to be cooked. And they missed it. Day seven, Saturday in the tomb. Jesus' body lay in the tomb where it was guarded by Roman soldiers. The Pharisees said, hey, uh, Pontius Pilate, we're going to have to guard this by Roman soldiers because if we don't, these disciples, they're radical, they're going to come and take the body and say that he was resurrected, and the second act would be worse than the first. Guards there, while his physical body lay in the tomb, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin by offering his perfect, spotless life to be sacrificed for you and I. He conquered death both, both spiritually and physically. He secured our eternal salvation. So much took place while he lay in that tomb. Sabbath, rest. Day eight, Resurrection Sunday, this day. The very foundation of all Christian doctrine hinges on this account, what took place this day. Early Sunday morning, several women Mary, Mary Magdalene, Joanne, Salome, and Mary, mother of James, come rushing to the tomb where they see that the entrance, entrance tomb had been rolled away. And an angel said, hey, he is not here, Matthew 28, for he is risen. 
Hallelujah. Yes. He's, as he said, he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. You see the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, everything inside of them spoke to Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. It all pointed through spiritual principles. This pointed, this was the, the feast of the first fruits, the Bacurum, was talked about all through that first five books of the, of the Bible, the Torah. The feast of first fruits. This is the day, this is the day after the Sabbath. This was the day after the Sabbath that followed the Passover, according to Leviticus 23. And on this day, every, the first sheaf would be lifted up before the Lord. Farmers, which was agrarian, the culture was agrarian, meaning agriculture was the, the way of life in that day. So these were farmers, these were planters, these were people that did life all through farming, through agriculture, livestock, whatever the case. They would work so hard and all their livelihoods would be in this harvest for the year. And the first crops would be cut would be brought into the temple and given over to God as a first fruit offering saying, I trust you, the first harvest of the harvest is yours, but I'm trusting you that you're gonna bring the increase in the rest of the harvest. Jesus was, is the first fruit of many who will be resurrected. Jesus's resurrection points, it was a sacrifice, it was an offering, and his resurrection points to the many more, the second harvest that will be brought in, resurrected from the dead. That's you and I. On Sunday, the day after the Sabbath, following the crucifixion, Jesus is raised from the dead. Yeshua's resurrection was representative, the pledge and the guarantee of the full harvest of resurrections to life. This is what the Christian faith is all about. You and I will never die. We transition into new perfected living bodies into eternity. And some of you are like, that's when I'm going to lose it. Yeah, I'm going to look good. I can just imagine what I'm going to look, look like in my heavenly body. I'm just, I, hey, that's what I'm, I'm building up for. That's, that's going to be my day. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 23 says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 22, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made dead. Alive, sorry. <laughs> all shall be, I've got confusion going on. All in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. The question here is are you going to be Christ's at his coming? The, the question, the buildup is have you fully received what has taken place? not only on the cross, but on this day 2,020 years ago? Have you fully accepted that what Jesus did on the cross and what the resurrection meant and what took place 
on that Sabbath day as he rested his physical body, as he defeated death and took back authority and handed it over to us, does your life look like you believe that? When people see you and hear about you, do they know you're a believer and represent the fullness of the meaning of what this day signifies? When people see you, maybe they see you in heaven, are they gonna know are they going to say, huh, I didn't know they were saved. What do you know? Never saw that one. So as we prepare to take communion together today, probably a cup in the lower seat back in front of you. I really want you to think about that. Will I be made alive at what the world called, calls death? And at the second coming, will I be going with Christ? And if I'm proclaiming Christ, Yet I'm staying in all these struggles. What do I need to do differently to apply God's word so that I can come out of this bondage? And if you've yet to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and if you've yet to kneel in the idea of this place called the cross, and if you've yet to say and declare and yield to Jesus Christ being your Lord and Savior, today's the day. Because otherwise, you're just eating some styrofoamy bread and juice, which absolutely means nothing to you. But before you do, and you're saying, I, I, I need my, my life to be resurrected. Today's the day. And it's so easy. It's as simple as saying, Lord Jesus, thank you for going to the cross for my sins. Thank you for being the spotless, sacrificial lamb. I believe that you were dead and buried for three days and that you rose again, resurrected, so that I may have eternal life. I make you Lord of life over every area of my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And according to Luke 22, as the Lamb of God was, Jesus was about to fulfill the meaning of Passover by giving his body to be broken, and his blood to be shed as a sacrifice he freed us 
from sin and death. And during the Last Supper, we establish this thing called communion. And he gives us a certain decree. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three and 26. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, Father, we thank you so much for sending your son. And thank you that as you see us, you see your perfect son. Father, I pray that you help us to accept that and the empowering grace that comes with the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection that empowers us to move beyond and past our yesterdays. And in your name, we take of this bread. He says, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And here's where it gets good. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because he's coming. And he's going to come with some power. And he's given you all authority and all, of, all power, everything that you need to live the abundant and fulfilled life. Today, you don't have to wait. You can own it today. But when we drink of this, we are toasting to Jesus and we are proclaiming his death. We are proclaiming that, oh, our, our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords, oh, he's coming. And it's going to get good. So let's tip up our cups to the Lord and say, thank you, Lord, for all that you're going to do. Thank you for what you have done. And thank you that you've allowed us to walk in the fullness of your glory. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.